And so now it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker for the day, a man that I know can walk and talk and dance and sing, and he is our very own author in residence, Dr. Patrick Cameron. All right, here we are. We just did this an hour and a half ago. Well, it won't be the same. So They know. We had a big discussion in class one night how the difference between the first service and the second service is. And, and uh, they're, all, they're identical. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Anyway, if you'd like to stand and sing a song with me in this very room, which will be up on the screen in a moment, please feel free. If not, stay seated. If you're here for the first time, just let it wash over you and, and uh, allow it to guide you wherever is appropriate. very room there's quite enough love for all the world and in this very room there's quite enough joy for all the world and there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear for spirit one spirit is in this very room in this very And I invite you, if you feel appropriate, to just take a deep breath in this moment. And as I breathe in and I breathe out, I'm reminded of that, that, that unbroken support provided each and every one of us by this sacred breath. A beautiful metaphor and example of the presence of, of this principle of life that is alive and dynamic and available to each and every one of us just as that breath is available and that our lungs and our physical body know what to take in and to release in an appropriate way I align my thinking with that in this moment what is mine to know what is mine to embrace and what is mine to release in this unending flow of discovery revelation of death and rebirth in this season of light. I just give thanks. I know every good thing necessary for you and I to experience in this moment and each moment hereafter, I direct this infinite intelligence within me to inform me, to resource me, to guide me, direct me, inspire me, and to bring me into that beautiful state of grace, of acceptance, of love, of love without condition in that Christ nature, that Christ consciousness, in this season of the Christ, I give thanks, I release anything in my awareness that restricts the effervescent flow of this dynamic vibration of the Most High, this principle of eternal life. Nothing in my being restricts that experience in every good way, and for this I give thanks. And inviting you to say with me, knowing it is already done in the mind of the One, and so it is. Thank you, and thank you, Stefan. Thanks for being here today, yes. 
So it's Easter. I got up, there was no basket anywhere when I got up today. I'm just, I guess I've outgrown the basket. I'm not saying that because my lovely wife, Laura, is sitting here. If I wanted a basket, I could have made my own, by the way. So. Hi. So I wanted to um, share a few ideas. Of, you know, Dr. Holmes, when he wrote this beautiful Science of Mind textbook, you know, people always wonder, for Christian, well, it depends on what Christian, Christian group you're talking about, but about a third of this book is about the life of the, this master teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, and the, and the interpretations at a, at a very metaphysical level of, of what uh, he was representing. And so I want to share a little bit of that with you today because it's, it's so profound. Dr. Holmes felt that the birth of Christ, which is really about the birth of consciousness, and so uh, the example I want to use to begin the, the conversation today with you is that I have a glass of water here that I'm going to hold out. And how much do you think this glass of water weighs? 8.2 ounces. We'll go with that. Thank you, Rhea. It's beautiful. We have someone that can do that. We should take you to that uh, thing where you guess the jelly beans. That would be fantastic. So anyway, 8.2 ounces. We'll go with that. But So this is a glass of water, and if I hold it as far as I can, let me stretch my arm out there a little tight this morning. Um, it's not too bad. I can hold this for probably a minute or two fairly comfortably. But if I try and hold it for, say, 15 minutes, or I try and hold it, so it doesn't weigh a whole lot right now, but if I continue to hold it for, say, a period of time, in an hour I'm going to probably be perspiring a little bit, and by the end of the day I probably won't even be able to lift my arm. And so it's a wonderful metaphor about what the, the life of this amazing teacher and all the, all the, the avatars that have taught pr the perennial truth uh, teach us is that we all have burdens. We're all carrying things. And what I believe spiritual practice does, my experience in, in life, is that my spiritual practice has allowed me at times to put my burdens down. So that when I come to an experience like this, so I come to a Sunday Easter celebration, or I come into a spiritual community, or I take a walk in the river valley, or whatever spiritual practice, you know, for some it's to run or to walk or to cross-country ski or it's a walking meditation, it's a labyrinth, whatever it may be. For all of us, we have different practices, but what our practices should enable us to do, for a moment at least, is to put our burden down. And so I think it's a wonderful metaphor because if I'm always carrying my burdens out in front of me or holding them up as my way of life and self-identification, it's exhausting. I can't hold them. And so then is it any wonder that we don't, the world, we don't get these gifts and, and, and insights and tools uh, growing up, at least I didn't, but that when we hold that, when our, our beingness, the story that we tell ourselves is about our struggles and our limitations and what we don't value, it's exhausting. And, and what we do, in a sense, is we hold it. And I'm not saying you do that. I mean, you may or may not. I think you probably do at times. I just know from my experience, my life, I've spent a lot of time holding Come showing up and, and walking around like this, you know. And, and then I wonder why I'm exhausted all the time. I don't have any energy to do anything productive because I'm too busy maintaining the, the lies that I tell myself. And so when we, we come together in, in celebration, we come to, hopefully when we come to spiritual community, we're able to put that down in a moment or we get a new perspective. Because what the, the teacher Jesus brought to the planet... And see, people say to me, well, do you think it's historical? Do you think it's what? And I said, you know, I don't know. But I don't think what's important, if, if you study, if you go back in history, just happen to have some stuff with me, as a matter of fact, put on my Christmas, my Christmas, there I go, I see. I put on my Easter jacket. 
Part of what is interesting about the, the story of, of Jesus and the story of many of the great avatars that came uh, onto the planet, came to, I'm going to share with you this article, little pieces of it. And a lot of it is aligned with nature. So what happened for, for time uh, prior to Christianity it was tied to nature. And so how did we get Easter and why is it this time of year and all these things? Well, it's, it's, it's been an evolving process of, of taking what the, the, the people prior to Christianity called their sacred traditions and then morphing that into what gives us the context that we have today. So the new moon, the sun and the moon are very important in this discussion. The new moon was, was born on the third day of the dark period. The new moon was born on the third day of the dark period. So in other words, between the old moon and the new moon, there's three days of darkness, which represents the three days that Jesus lied in the tomb. And so what happened was the mythology got superimposed upon this idea. And it's valuable because it, it speaks to our, our inherent connection with nature. Do you know why we dress up on, on Easter with colors? Because it's new life. We are copying exactly what nature does. It's the new life. It's the rabbit, the proliferation of life. Had two humongous jackrabbits living under our deck all winter. These great big things just leap out. Man, they're huge. And, 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 and so, but we're imitating nature with we dress up, the flowers, the new life. This wasn't around. This, and this, this is a tradition that, that far exceed, uh, precedes Christianity. But it got adapted. So it says... A be it known on authority was the origin, the origin of the three days during which all saviors, all saviors in ancient scripture reposed in the tomb of death. The ancients celebrated four great, four great religious festivals of the year. In June, they came the great fire festival. It was a symbolic of the highest expression of the fiery nature of deity. That was in June. In September came the festival that commemorated the incarnation, whatever name it was. In December was celebrated the end of the dark night of death and the birth or quickening of the sun god to new life. And at the vernal equinox in March, which is what we're in now, followed the joyous festival of the bursting of the bars of death. We have this great festival of Easter, typing the resurrection of death, life on all planes. And how do we give expression to the meaning? Chiefly in the outward form of bright new spring clothing. This is not merely a social custom. It arose out of the archaic symbology when man thought it fitting to imitate nature, who was then clothing herself anew in the bright glories of springtide. Ponder a moment over the idea that you'll be able to see an infinite depth of new meaning in this custom of casting off old garments and coming out in new ones. The snake was a symbol of the resurrection. Was his reason, was the was sloughing off and the self-renewal in the springtime. Casting off the old garment of mortality, the body of flesh, and standing forth transfigured in the radiant body of solar glory, our spiritual house not made with hands. Easter is rightly the consummate festival of human joy because it signalizes the God release from imprisonment in a body of what was to him virtual death. So it goes way back. And it doesn't diminish it, but it's interesting because what we know is that um, Pope Julius decreed, he was back in the 300 A.D., he decreed that the birth of Christ was March 26th or 25th. And then there happened to be, that was also a goddess uh, birthday. So then they decided, well, we got to move it around. And so what they did is they aligned it with the, the births of Mithras and Dionysus, who were Roman gods. And that was part of the Roman tradition, which morphed into uh, Christianity. 
So perspective on it, so we don't know when Jesus was born. We don't know when he died. In fact, I don't even know if he lived, but what I do know is what's important is what it represents because it, it speaks to the archetypes that Carl Jung talked about. And so when, in, when we talk about this whole celebration of, of the, 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 the Christ, see, Christ means nothing more than the anointed one, which is a Greek term, which represents God in human form. That's what Christ means. And so when you, the, 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 the anointing is the shifting in consciousness, it's the awakening. And that's true. I don't know about the facts. You know, like the, there's been so much time gone by, I wasn't there to write it all down. I wish I had, but maybe some of you were, but I wasn't. And so, but the point is what's valuable and what, and what Dr. Holmes realized in this whole book was about the, the embodiment of the Christ. See, Jesus never once said, worship me. There's nowhere in scripture that, where it says, worship me. And yet, a lot of traditions on the planet we believe that unless we go through Jesus, we can't get to heaven. So then it requires our worship. And what he was saying was, not worship me, but follow me. Follow me. As, as Dr. Holmes said, he was not the great exception, he was the great example. And whether he, it's historical or not, I don't think it matters. But what's important is that we, for myself, I can only speak for myself. What I know is that when I, when I live from my false self, which is that small self that is in competition with myself and with others, which is in judgment about other people and myself, which is in criticism, which is in, in you know, I, I read an article yesterday online that said that, and I'm, I'm a dual citizen, but most of my working career has been in the United States. It said that the social security system will be broke by the time I'm ready to cash my ticket. So I have to tell you, there was a moment pause when I read that. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. What an interesting concept. <laughs> that money I paid in over the years will not be there at the end. Hmm. I have to tell you, I spent a little bit of time in victim consciousness for a while, and then I realized, that's okay. I can preach till I'm 112, and these folks will still support me, so no problem. <laughs> no, I, well, thank you, but I'm, just, I'm goofing now, but... Or not, but, but the thing is, there's an example of life showing up, and you go, oh my gosh, because why would you fear that? Well, there's not enough. That's fear. I mean, so when I look at that, there's, here's one more thing. You know, I'm carrying along with me, fear, lack, limitation. And after a couple of days of this, it gets really, gets really heavy. And so how do we, how do we lighten that load? How do we move from that false self, all the fears, all the concerns, all the worries that, into something that's richer and more full and rich? And we've come, I, what I love about Ernest Holmes in the beginning of this beautiful textbook is, is our divine nature is one of freedom and joy. Freedom and joy. How do I live in freedom and joy? Because I go out in the world and I read the paper and I see this, I see that, I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, and then I, I spin into it and I realize when I spin into it, what I'm doing is just helping support that in my own experience. Now, um, Father Richard Rohr, who wrote some wonderful books. This is The Immortal Diamond by uh, Reverend Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan. And, and he, he has this to say about, about um, this concept. Because what he's doing is he's teaching the same thing Holmes is teaching. I'm getting ready tomorrow to get on a plane and go down to Brasilia to uh, spend two weeks with John of God. And I'm reading a book about him. And when I come back, I'm going to talk about it. And the interesting thing is they're teaching there what we teach. They're teaching exactly what we, they're teaching consciousness. It's about consciousness. And when you go into the group in any day at one, any given time, there's no appointments. People just show up. There's 300 to 1,000 people that line up. And depending on when you've been there, you get in a certain line. 
And what they deal with is consciousness. And what they deal with is this idea that, that consciousness precedes experience and consciousness shifted and changed will create physical form, will, will uh, influence physical form. They just do it from a whole different tradition. The Brazilian country I found out is the most Catholic country in the world. But they're also very spiritual. So people say, well, I'm Catholic, but I'm a spiritualist. And spiritualism is really a form of what we teach, which is that if I... If I and, and so when I'm reading his book, I'm reading a book about him, and he says, well, when you dwell upon something, it will create that experience in your life. Where have I heard that before? Oh, my gosh. And so people go down there, and they have these amazing... Exp- I'm reading this stuff, and it's just like these... This, you know, and it's a vortex of energy where everyone comes in, and everyone holds the energy. There's a vibrational field... They all hold the energy and they ask you not to open your eyes because it, it diminishes the, the energy. They ask you to wear white because a, a, a dark color diminishes the energy. So when you go, I had to run around trying to find white pants, which is a whole, it's probably about a month's worth of talks, but I won't do it right now. <laughs> but anyway, but it's fascinating, fascinating. And so I want to go study it because I want to see, Holmes said what, what, what our, our opportunity is is when people enter into our community that whatever healing they're seeking becomes their experience. And he said, it's not bad if you haven't done it. It just means you haven't done it. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, here's these people. See, they don't have all the distractions. They're just there, and they're in- inherent. I think, I think when you're not exposed to all this information, sometimes you just step into faith and go, oh, my gosh, there's a power greater than I am that can direct my life, which is what Dr. Holmes said. And then we get that, and we realize, well, you know, not with my neighbor, because I don't like my neighbors. So God can't possibly be alive in them. So uh, Father Rohr says, the very quality of what we call life is that when we are in touch with our true selves, it's exactly what Holmes talks about. When we're in our true selves, when we're in that state of grace, life's different. Life's rich and full and wonderful. And sometimes it's very, and sometimes it's very profound, sometimes it's sorrowful, sometimes, but it's real. It's real. And he says, our existence reveals itself as, and this true self re- reveals itself as eternal, gratuitous, which is gratitude, endless, outflowing, and inherently trustworthy. No doubts, nothing to worry about, no fear. All needs are met. True life is eternal because it includes everything. Life like water is inherently resourceful and flows into whatever channel allows it. True life always morphs into love, forgiveness, forgives everything for being that thing and thus is much stronger than death so if we're to understand that, that, that see we have we may have a great idea and we may say I'm affirming this great idea for myself because I have it in the ideal and then all of a sudden we start to do our work and, 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 all, and, and so the healing is at three levels is at the level of the mind level of the soul level of the body of our flesh and so a lot of times we get really clear in our mind and then all of a sudden having the demonstration it doesn't show up well, there's, there's restrictions there. There's, there's limiting beliefs about what's possible. In our mind, we get it. We've done all the work we can in our minds, but all of a sudden, it's in the soul, and it's in, the, and it's in our, our, our body, and it's not making the connection. So we have a demonstration, but it's half-measured because there's something within us that's restricting us. And so what a spiritual practice is is to put the burdens down and put the biases down and do the, the, the work that this teacher Jesus talks about and Dr. Holmes writes about. Put down the burdens so that, that it can be our experience of the true self. And so in this birth of the Christ, it's this, this, it's this new life that's coming forth for all of us. But it's every day's Easter. Every day's the resurrection. Not just today. 
But we need to celebrate these things, and I think it's important because it's part of our legacy on this, on this planet. So Rohr continues. He said, this is the real and lasting meaning of the resurrection of the Christ. It is far, and it far surpasses any argument for or against a mere bodily resurrection. A lot of people think that that proves something. Life's eternal, and we know that. I have no doubt about that. And, 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 and I don't think Jesus took life to forgive my sins. I wasn't around then. What does that mean? So that means that I, I get, get off scot-free because he paid my penalties? He's my scapegoat? I don't think so. I think what he was saying is, these things I have done, you shall do an even greater, which means then I've got to step into my own spiritual practice. I've got to do my own house cleaning. But that's the beautiful thing about it. What would it look like if it was really easy? It'd be horrible. It would be, could you imagine if you got everything demonstrated in your life that you thought about? Where the heck would you keep everything? <laughs> You'd have a storage problem. I would. Rohr says this, remember, please remember, you do not and you must not Fear, attack, or hate your false self. You must not fear, attack, or hate your false self. There's a novel idea, huh? That would only continue a negative and arrogant death energy, and it is delusional and counterproductive anyway. It would be like trying to drive out the devil by prince of devils. As Jesus put it, in the great economy of grace, all is used and transformed, and nothing is wasted. All is used and transformed. And nothing is wasted. God uses your various false selves to lead you beyond them. Note that Jesus' clear message to his beloved Mary Magdalene. And not that she squelch, deny, or destroy her human love for him. He's much more subtle than that. He just says to her, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me. He is saying, don't hold on to your needy false self. But see, it requires surrender. Holmes talks about it, it requires surrender. Any of you 12-step people, first step requires surrender. I'm reading a John of God book, first step, he says, surrender. Our challenge is we get the mystical tradition and we're so intellectual about it, it's so hard to put it down. Because I control and direct my life. And that's second kingdom, that's high second kingdom. It's all good. And then to move into third kingdom, we gotta put all that down. I just got so good at manifesting and directing my life and manipulation, protecting myself, because I got all this stuff. Second kingdom is suppressing the fears, pushing it down. And third kingdom is realizing there's nothing to fear. Oh my gosh. What a relief. This is the spiritual art of detachment, which is not taught much in capitalistic worldview where clinging and possessing are not just the norm, but even the goal. And we can see how we're trapped. He continues a few pages later. He talks about Mary Magdalene. I think it's really important because Mary got a bad rap. I mean, Mary, the story of Mary was she was a prostitute. She's a sinner. She represented all of the negative things. And so Rohr says this, Did it ever surprise you that Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene first after his raising? She was the first one there. Remember that, Rick? You were there, weren't you? He was there. He was one of the centurion guys there in that past lifetime. She is a symbolic stand-in for all the longing humanity and all who are considered sinners. So she represents this idea of sin. And Holmes said we don't, we don't believe in sin. We believe in missing the mark. Sin is, a, sin is an old archer's term that means you miss the mark. 
you go pull the arrow out and take another shot. But if we believe and keep affirming that we're sinners and we're bad and wrong and bad and wrong and bad and wrong, which is a very popular activity, by the way, there is no chance for grace. There's no chance for forgiveness or redemption or stepping into the Christ consciousness because we don't deserve it because we've made mistakes. We've lied. We've cheated. We've betrayed people. We've been betrayed. I had an older brother, four years older than me, and, and he was one of my best teachers because you always think, you know, I had this romanticized fantasy about an older brother kind of sticking up for you and, and, and going to battle for you. And, I just, and so he had this group of buddies, and I was quite verbal when I was like a little kid. I don't know if you remember. I could believe that, but I was. And I could really annoy people with insults and, and disparaging comments because and, sarcasm was our way of loving one another in my family of birth. And so I would bring that, that spiritual gift to that environment. And so then those guys would start beating up on me physically. And they were bigger and stronger, and it hurt. And so thinking that my older brother would step in and protect me, he would stand to the side, and he would go, get him, get him, yeah, kick him. <laughs> and so I just thought, this doesn't line up with my ideal. But what he taught me was, because he was doing the best he knew how, and he was scared, and he didn't have, you can't give what you don't have. And, and, and so it taught me a lot because it, it forced me to be self-reliant. It taught me to be mindful what I said, how I treated people, and it also taught me to run really fast to get away from these guys when I had to. <laughs> but the point is you have these experiences and you realize he wasn't equipped for any of that and he's not there to fight my fights. But for a long time I thought, what a crummy older brother. I want to trade him in and get a new model. So... Mary Magdalene is symbolic of the stand-in for all sinners. All the many Marys of the gospel seem to sum up in her, in her at this point, at least in our imagined world. Jesus is of the women with the alabaster jar, perhaps Mary Magdalene, and I believe it was. Uh, Margaret Starberg wrote a book called The Woman with the Alabaster Jar, and she's a brilliant historian, brilliant book. And she sat next to a guy on the plane one day who wrote a best-selling book called The Da Vinci Code. He, was, he, he saw the, the woman with the alabaster jar. He got a copy of it, read it, and it inspired the Da Vinci Code. She's an amazing woman, and I've spent time with her. So Mary Magdalene, her many, her many sins must have been forgiven her, or she would not have had shown, shown such great love. She's a prime example of sin or mistake being put down so that she could show up in such great love. She's an inspiration for all of us. And then... He turns it around and he affirms the opposite. This is Jesus. He says, It is the person who is forgiven little who shows little love. You want to experience great love in your life? It's so hard to forgive because so many people have done us wrong. It's to, to shift our perspective on it so that we can show great love. Not receive great love, show great love. It's not about consumption, it's about contribution. He said he's making an amazing connection that might be the heart of the matter here. He is clearly saying that the very failures and radical insufficiencies of our lives are what is leading us into a larger life. He's saying that if Mary Magdalene can do enough forgiveness work of all the things that was was said about her, and I think she's symbolic of that, so that she could be the, the first one that greets Jesus when he comes out of the darkness because she represented the highest form of love. He says, it is, it, 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 he says, as it were, to the sneering men at the gathering, when Jesus stood and he said, you're all wrong about God. And then he pointed at Mary Magdalene and said, she gets it, and you don't. Because they were still in their, their false selves. And Mary had nowhere else to go. She, she, she'd been there. 
She'd been road hard and put away wet too many times. And she was in that, and she was humbled. And she was in that state of grace so she could be there to greet. See, because I don't think Jesus' consciousness was fully developed until he went through that, that death and resurrection, is what, he, what he's saying there. He didn't just show up fully orbed. He had the human experience because he was a human. He was, aware of, he was aware of the God presence within him, the Christ nature. So Rohr continues this, and I think it's one of the most important things I can share with you today. He says, do you realize how counterintuitive this is to think about this? He said, do you realize how hopeful this is? The human, the human playing field is utterly leveled. It is our mistake that leads us to God. It is our mistakes that lead us to God. We come to divine union not by doing it right, but by doing it wrong. What I know in my own journey is the expectation is your ministry, you should be perfect. You never make a mistake. It's like, oh my God, the reason that my ministry works is because I'm in it with you. And I, and, and I have no place to hide. Somebody once said ministry is like standing in front of everybody and completely naked and turning around very slowly. <laughs> Rick? Rick's smiling. So that's, what an imagination you have. Mary Magdalene is the icon and archetype of love itself. Needed, given, received, and passed on. And Jesus' appearance to her first and alone is the clear affirmation of this wonderful and astounding message. Only a history of interpretation by male celibate clergy was unable to see that which is now obvious. You know, a bunch of guys got a hold of it. And they, and, and they used the story for their own their own agenda, which is their own limited false self, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just important for us. We don't have to go burn those guys down or make them wrong. It's just realizing that was not the, the jewel that was there being expressed. Mary Magdalene is the gospel personage who needs love to be stronger than death, and so she is the first to know it, and perhaps at the deepest level. She is the first one who symbolically comes to consciousness, as it were, and thus it is clear. Witness to the witnesses. She is the real knower, and her need for love and forgiveness has made that to be true. In fact, love and knowledge have become one in her. It's no surprise that she is named as standing at the foot of the cross with two more Marys. I mean, it's all there in the symbolism. And so we're here celebrating Easter. We're celebrating new life. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a pagan influence in all the, way, the celebrations that we have, how we move dates around, but we long for these things because they're part, as Carl Jung said, they're part of the archetype of our being. See, we all know that there's a divine spark that lives within us. We all know that at some deep, deep level, but when we're, when we're walking around like this all the time, it's really hard to connect. Because, yeah, I, I, know I'm, well, I know I'm a child of God, but... God, this is heavy. I'm busy holding this up. I don't deserve. I'm not good at relationships because I don't deserve love. And, and abundance? Like I can't have abundance in my life. Jesus said, I've come so you may have life and have a life more abundantly. And then he didn't say, oh, but not financially. So what limitations am I carrying? What burdens am I putting out in front of myself? That's the question I get to ask today. I mean, it's exciting to realize that our humanity and our, our trying, see, it's not, I mean, I'm always amazed that I just, I'm blown away how we just think everybody's got to be perfect. And, and it, it, you, know, you know, our organization says that we want a world that works for everyone. 
Well, at some level, the world does work for everyone. We don't have anything to fix. Because consciousness precedes experience. So if you believe that you don't deserve, guess what? People show up in your life to play that out with you. So you have stuff, you have good that shows up in your life. And if you believe you don't deserve, you'll find a way to get rid of it. I, I was watching a thing the other day, on, uh, yesterday, on, on a Sunday morning. The guy that wrote the musical Once, they turned into a Broadway play. His name is Glenn Hansard. He's an Irishman. And he grew up in a family of drunks. And he said that we, what, what would happen in our family is good would happen. And immediately right after something bad would happen. Which just speaks to consciousness. Which speaks to, I can't have any good in my life. I've got to create some bad. This is too unfamiliar territory for me. So to break those patterns. This is a beautiful piece from Roar that speaks to what I think, and brilliant, I love this guy. I've told people many times, if this guy had been around when I was a Catholic, I'd still be a Catholic. But you know what? I still am a Catholic. I'm a religious scientist, and my, my, early, tradition, my early conditioning was the Catholicism. Catholics wouldn't say I'm a Catholic because I don't go to Mass and I don't, I don't think the Pope is infallible and all those other things. But what I celebrate is the Christ consciousness being born on this planet. And I think that's what's the most important thing. And then the opportunity for me to do my own house cleaning so I can have that experience so I can stand on my true self more often than not. So Rohr says this, that makes Jesus, why do we celebrate 2,000 years later? He says, Jesus does death in a, in a way that shocks and surprises everybody, even to this day which makes me think we're still more formed by the classic pagan world since we do not see how unique Jesus is. Contrary to almost all patterns, he does not become the self-serving victim. I mean, he's up on the cross, metaphorically and physically perhaps. And he, could have, he had every reason to feel betrayed. Judas, you, you might get my hands on you. And he's there. Contrary to almost, he's not, he's not the self-serving victim, nor demand any victimhood of others, which is almost the only story of history. Instead, he becomes the forgiving and fruitful victim to awaken to us, to what we are doing, to goodness, to God, and to ourselves. What we're doing to goodness, to God, and to ourselves. Because what Jesus said in his message, if you want to boil it down to one sentence, he said, we are killing the things that we should love. That was his message. And we're killing ourselves. When we, see, when we wake up, everything changes. And then we don't have the conversations in our head that we have most, that I have most of the time. I'm not standing there like this, exhausted, because my, my, my burdens are, are leading my way. I love this. Instead, he says, we become, we become the forgiving and fruitful victims to awaken us to what we're doing, to goodness, to God, and to ourselves. He holds, carries, purifies, and transforms evil instead of passing it on like most of us do. Jesus does death really right. That's what his story was. He didn't blame anybody. At the, in fact, his last words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That would apply to us, perhaps. Forgive me, for I don't know what I'm doing. I've been given these stories and this legacy and don't, don't think too much of yourself. And of course, in our, our egoic nature, we don't, you know, nobody likes that. That would be too prideful. But the point is that there's a, there's a divine life that lives in all of us and it's awakening. 
And we come out of the darkness and it's a glorification of that. And when, as Mary Magdalene witnessed for us and demonstrated, she was the worst of the worst according to the story. And it was her, the power of her deep forgiveness that allowed her to love at such a great level, to offer love. And that's the challenge for us. But I believe that's what this Easter celebration is about. That's what this life of this amazing teacher and avatar is. Because those principles, whether it's factually true or not, the principles of what that idea of the Christ consciousness stands for is precious and it's important. And it's alive by means of you and I. Rohr says that that our, our... uh, the, the, the highest form and sign of, post of our divinity is that we're in this form, that we've taken form. And isn't it a blessing to know that our humanity and our mistakes and our biases and all the things that we, we hold so dear are the things that are propelling us forward? Because eventually this, we, we decide to put the burden down more and more and more. So when we come together, hopefully there's moments where you can put down all of it and just listen to yourself. Listen to the divine intelligence within you. You know, Mary Morrissey says that in Prosperity Plus. You don't come to church. After a period of time, you don't come to hear me. You come to hear yourself. And that takes time. So in the meantime, I fill in those little pieces. I provide enough comic relief and, and, and uh, um, insight to, to inspire that. But what I really think happens, just like it does with John of God, is we come together in this vibration where we're lifted, the, the collective is so much more powerful than the individual. And then the grace that that creates as we do our own spiritual practice and hold and love one another unconditionally creates that, that opportunity for a shift and transformation of consciousness. And I think that's what the, this season is about. And then we, t- we take off the old garments that no longer work and we put on the new garments. And it's a beautiful thing. So if you're going out today and you're going to go see family that, you, that are a challenge, anybody have family members that are a challenge? Okay. Then how can you put it down so that when you're there, what, are, what is the new story that you can tell yourself? How can you love yourself more deeply? How, you, how can you honor yourself, the Christ within you? How can you forgive yourself, as Mary Magdalene did, to move into that, that unlimited expression of unconditional love? So that's the question I'm going to move forward with today, and I invite you to do the same. I stand with you. One of the, one of the, the, the most powerful tools to move into the state of grace, there's two pieces. It's gratitude and forgiveness. Gratitude and forgiveness. So what can we be grateful for today? Beautiful tradition. Beautiful, wonderful, wise people have gone before. So I can go pick up a book and say, oh my gosh, this is it. And it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And I go, oh my gosh, I get this. This is so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, the awareness is that the message of Jesus is, comes from Father Rory. He says, you know, we, we fear and we kill what we should love within ourselves and we see it in one another. And so we're here representing that, that beautiful consciousness, that opportunity. We can start right now wherever we are because that's the only place we can start anyway. So thank you for coming together. Thank you for this beautiful community, for your support, your love, your consciousness, your commitment, and your beauty. So I recognize the, the Christ in each one, and I thank you for seeing that in me as well. Blessings, so it is.